We're going to read today, continuing not from John, as it says on there, but from Jonah. Uh, We'll just add an A in there. Um, Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. The sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know whose account this on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, why has this calamity come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this? that you have done for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So this week we continue our sermon series on the book of Jonah. Last week, we heard the beginning. God came to Jonah, sent him to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was one of history's most brutal regimes and had invaded and destroyed Jonah's homeland. Yet God was sending Jonah to them anyway to tell them to turn from their evil and wicked ways, to tell them to repent. Instead of heading off to Nineveh, though, of course, Jonah hopped the first ship to Tarshish, 
Tarshish being a resort gateway on the other side of the known world, away from Nineveh and away from the presence of God. And this week, we're in the boat with Jonah after it's set sail. But no sooner are they set, it does the crew set sail that God sends a storm so strong that it's liable to bust the ship back to lumber. Jonah thought he could run, but God's in hot pursuit, threatening to tear the ship apart just to get him back on track. The crews terrorized and tries everything to stop the storm or escape it, and eventually they find out that Jonah's the cause of the whole thing, and they throw him overboard. And that's when God sends the famous fish to swallow him up and rescue him. I mean, there's so much going on in this text. I just love it. There's a sermon in just about every single verse. The thing I find most interesting, though, about this text is the sailors. The sailors. The sailors start out as non-believers, as pagans, and eventually, by the end of the chapter, they're converted. They're transformed into full-blown believers. How does this happen? I mean, it's not something that you see every day. In my six years of preaching, uh, I haven't really seen any kind of turnaround like this. So how does Jonah pull off in a mere matter of verses this incredible conversion on the behalf of these sailors, considering who Jonah is? Because Jonah's just not so great. After all, Jonah's a coward. While the sailors are trying everything they can To save the ship, Jonah's down underneath the deck, taking a nap. He's pulled his covers over, hoping that it'll all blow over. And this multicultural crew, on the other hand, they pray to their multiple gods, hoping one of them can put a stop to the terror. And they even sacrifice precious cargo. They toss it overboard just to lighten the load so they can hit the the waves with with, uh, more intentionality or something. So, you know, the captain goes down to the bottom of the vessel and has to toss Jonah out of bed and yell at him to get up on board to help out and pray to his God. And no doubt the sailors at this point, you know, their opinion of Jonah has gone down considerably. No doubt that they think at this point that Jonah's a a bit of a wimp, you know? And they probably call him all sorts of impolite names, you know, like uh, they speak like sailors, so... (laughs) <laughs> so bad it's good isn't it um so they jonah's a coward they certainly don't convert on account of jonah's courage and not only that they know that the storm is all his fault being pre-modern people they figure that the storm has some kind of moral meaning that somebody's responsible. So they, they cast lots to figure this out. And like casting lots was where you take, you know, a whole bunch of pieces of a ceramic pot. You'd like write everybody, you know, you'd be like Keith, Laura, Kelly, Ryan, you know, and you'd shake them all up and then throw them. And then whoever's furthest away or closest to you is the person responsible or the right person for the job or what have you. I think a, a way that I like to think of it is that they consulted a Ouija board, you know, and uh, they said, oh, spirits, uh, who is responsible for this storm? And they're like, J-O-N-A-H, right? It's Jonah. 
They figure it out. And this freaks them out, of course. They have no idea where Jonah's from. Where are you from? They ask. What do you do for a living? What did you do to bring this on? Tell us. And Jonah explains that he's a Hebrew and that he worships Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the dry land and the sea. And this God called him and sent him, but he ran away. So not only is he a coward, he's a coward that that brought this tsunami on top of all of them and brought them within a hair's breadth of a watery grave. So why would they want anything to do with this guy or his weird Israelite religion if it produces somebody so fearful and incompetent like Jonah? They don't convert on account of his courage on one hand, and they don't convert on account of his virtue or his personal magnetism, his charisma either. There really isn't much about Jonah that inspires the soul, really. He flees and hides from a problem that he created. And yet the pagan crew converted anyway. Why is that? Why? The answer comes to us in the final episode, the final scene. And it's a bit unexpected. Once the sailors know Jonah's to blame, they interrogate him as to how to fix it. You created this mess, tell us how to get out of it. They've tried everything, but the waves are just splashing higher and higher and higher. So Jonah tells them that they've got to pick him up. Pick me up, he says. Pick me up and just toss me overboard. Feed me to the sea. The whole thing's my fault and you're going to die because of me. So toss me over. Let me be the scapegoat. There's no other way around or out. You've got to toss me overboard. I mean, and interestingly, they don't punt him immediately into the surf. They kind of jam the oars against the storm for a bit. They try to get out of it. They do their best because they don't want to kill him. I mean, of course, they don't want to kill him because killing's bad, but they're also not quite sure if what he's saying is true. So if they killed him, then they'd be, if they tossed him into the deep and he was, uh, and he was uh, innocent, then that would be bad too. But there's no other, there's no other option at this point. They tried everything that they could. And so as they dangle him, you know, dangle him over the deep, they say, you know, Lord of heaven and earth, forgive us. Let this not be innocent blood on our hands. And they just toss him in. If this guy's wrong, there's a good possibility that they're going to be on the receiving end of an even worse wrath, but they do it because they're pretty much out of other options. But luckily, Jonah's not wrong. Because as soon as his body splashes against the surface, the clouds break and the boat just drifts on a calm sea. It's at this moment, it says, that the storm is stilled. The moment when Jonah's finally able to own his own sin and accept the consequences for it. 
And it's at this moment where the crew stands in awe of the Lord, offering sacrifice and making vows. They dedicate gifts to God in gratitude for this unexpected salvation. And they commit themselves to his future service. And one commentator describes this as the moment where the boat turns from a fearful escape pod to a seaborne sacred temple. There's worship, there's incense, there's prayer. God stills the storm and the crew is converted. This crew goes from pagan idolaters to full-blown believers in the God of Israel. And the surprise here though is that it wasn't because Jonah's brave. It's not because he's pious or impressive or charismatic in any way but because Jonah accepts his condemnation. He quits running away and instead offers himself up to save the ones who he endangered. I mean, we don't even, internally, we're not even sure if Jonah had a virtuous motive when he did it, but this is what happens. And to top it all off, Jonah isn't punished. He's rescued. God sends that fish that swallows him up in an act of grace. Now, stories of conversion, they don't usually sound like this. You see, we tend to think that people come to faith primarily through our goodness or our piety. Maybe it's through our wise arguments. So here's a diagram. Here's the five arguments for God from Thomas Aquinas. Let me make you accustomed to them. Or we believe that faith is inspired through example, like the old quote, which is, which is misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He never said this, but here's the quote that's usually attributed to him. He says, always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That the world will somehow see our good works and say, wow, I want to be like that. And sometimes it works. I mean, One of my first stepping stones to faith was Marcus Borg's book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, that plotted out the intellectual argument for faith. I could believe and take science seriously at the same time. And there have been countless saints on my own journey that have paved the way, people who showed me the depth and beauty of God's love, and some of them in this church, some of them in the sanctuary, in fact. I'll let you guess who. But here, Jonah reminds us of a whole other virtue that has less to do with the good we've done and more to do with owning our imperfection and our finitude. It's the virtue of humility, the virtue of humility. Here, Jonah's humbled by the awesome power of the creator. And in the process, he reminds us of a compelling instrument in the toolbox of sharing the good news that we tend to forget. And that tool is confession. It's the willingness to own our faults and failures in the trust that they won't lead to our destruction, but to our salvation, no matter how deep or terrifying the sea of consequences may be. 
I remember a couple of years ago in a church membership course, we were doing a little icebreaker, you know, we were going around the circle and getting to know each other. And one of the questions was, what brought you to St. George's? And usually somebody says something like the United Church's inclusion of LGBTQ people. Another says that they went to a United Church in Ontario. They were raised in the United Church. Or, you know, a few others would say, Richard Topping, the principal of Vancouver Theology, told me to come, you know, that sort of thing. But one person's answer, I mean, these are all good answers, of course. I'm not saying that they're bad answers. But one person's answer really struck out to me, and I'll never forget it. And you know who you are if you are watching or most likely listening on a phone. This person said, I was brought here because I'm a hypocrite. I was brought here because I'm a hypocrite. And I was a little confused and I said, you know, could you say, could you say more about that? You don't need to go into details, but could you say more about that? And I said, hoping to get a clearer answer. I decided to come one Sunday, she said, because of the church sign. The sign outside says, church is full of hypocrites, and there's always room for one more, right? The church is full of hypocrites, and there's always room for one more. The sign doesn't, the sign doesn't say anything right now. It's down for repairs, but that's what it said at the sign. And I'm a hypocrite, she said. I'm not perfect by any means. So when I saw the sign, I figured that this was the place for me. It's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. We don't have to look very far to see that our culture is dominated by the need for self-justification. Whenever a storm hits, whatever crisis it may be, whether it's of our own invention or somebody else's, we hit social media to make sure everybody knows that we're on the proper side, that we hold all the right opinions, that we're for all the right things and against the wrong ones. And I include myself in this. But not only is our own righteous imperfection untrue, it's truly, it's a truly exhausting thing to maintain day after day after day. And it's absolutely freeing to have the option to do otherwise, to be vulnerable, to not be perfect. One of the greatest gifts that we have to offer the church is being able to opt out of this game entirely, to be truthful about our lives without the fear of destruction or death, like the sailors drawn to God through Jonah. This person was drawn to church, not through our righteousness, our goodness, or our liberal social awareness, no matter how important or good those things may be, but she was converted through our humility our humility, our willingness to admit our hypocrisy, to confess our sins, to throw nobody but ourselves under the bus, over the side of boat, the boat, knowing that the only thing we'll ever drown in is the gracious mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in being consumed by death on the cross has swallowed all sin in his resurrection. Friends, brothers and sisters, on most 
days, we may be like Jonah, cowards running away from our problems. We may be uninspiring individuals who have often little to show for it in terms of showcasing our spiritual skills or strength. But we've still been given a power just as potent, if not more so. We've been given something that's just as can be just as compelling in our witness to the world, the gift of God's grace. We know we can screw it all up and suck everybody else in our lives into a vortex of our guilt and shame, and yet still find ourselves freed and others saved by the loving kindness of Christ, who even the wind and the seas obey. So, no matter the storm that surrounds you, may you face up to your own finitude and faults and failings, resting easy in the still, sea-stilling knowledge of the love of God. And may your humility be a witness to everyone you know. May you share the great news of forgiveness in word and in deed, often in spite of yourself. Because in this boat we call the church, we are all hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. And that's good news. Thank God for that. Amen. Will you sing with me, uh, Voices United, 625, I Feel the Winds of God. See. 